Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On today's episode of District of Conservation, we are joined by Bill Cooksey who is the Sportsman's Outreach Director for Vanishing Paradise. And if you guys don't know Bill and his work, you're going to learn more about him in this episode of the podcast. I first met Bill about a year and a half ago. I feel like it's maybe two years now, at least a year and a half, when we were introduced by our mutual friend Travis Thompson of the Cast and Blast podcast, Bill lives in Tennessee. He is an avowed sportsman. We talk a lot offline about politics, hunting, culture wars, all this type of stuff. But he knows a lot, and he has been working with Vanishing Paradise, which is a project of the National Wildlife Federation, for many, many years. So here's more about that program, if you're curious. So Vanishing Paradise is a program launched in 2009 by the National Wildlife Federation and Ducks Unlimited to advocate for restoration of the Mississippi River Delta. From meeting with legislators at the state capitol to connecting outdoor industry leaders to the conservation movement, we're educating on the issue of coastal restoration in duck blinds out on the water and in D.C. and everywhere in between. Our team remains committed to restoring the Mississippi River Delta and since the 2010 Gulf spill, we have expanded our advocacy to help restore other critical habitats along the Gulf Coast. Here's my conversation with Bill. We talk at length about the importance that sportsmen and women play in conservation, and I think you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be interesting to learn a little bit more about that region of the United States and what the future of hunting looks like in terms of advocacy, participation, and the like. Check it out and let me know what you think. We are delighted to have Bill Cooksey with Vanishing Paradise here on the podcast with us. Bill, it's so good to catch up. I hope you're doing well. And uh, I'm really excited for you to share with my listeners what your work uh, scope is looking like these days. Well, thanks so much for having me. I mean, we met, what, about a year and a half ago in D.C. And uh, I've been looking forward to the opportunity and just glad to be able to get on here with you today. Likewise, Travis was wonderful to facilitate that connection at that coffee shop. I think it was the Reagan building <laughs> during that time. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. it was a lot it's of fun. Great. You know how those those times are. Everyone's hectic and it's a lot going on. So I appreciate that day you making some time to, to meet with us and have coffee. That was a lot of fun. And it's led to staying in touch and, and becoming friends. That's right. That's right. That's where you know, we dog social media so much, but... It's such a great platform for just staying in touch with people without without having to go through a lot of time in your office day. You know, even I, I tell my people in, in our work that uh, one of my favorite things in the morning is sitting down and doing happy birthdays to people on Facebook. And it gets me thinking about people who I may have not corresponded with lately. And it gives you that opportunity. And suddenly you're resurrecting those relationships. And, and uh, you know, it can be a great thing when it's used properly. Absolutely. Why don't you talk about your work with Vanishing Paradise and how it's a project of the National Wildlife Foundation? Okay. Um, you know, uh, National Wildlife Federation, of Our course, Federation. 
<laughs> started by Bing Darling, you know, back in the 30s and 40s. So just like the Federal Duck Stamp and Ducks Unlimited, those sportsmen at that time were instrumental. Um, Vanishing Paradise came out of Katrina first, and then, of course, bloomed during the oil spill as well, with, you know, the BP spill. But it was started with Ducks Unlimited and NWF. Um, it was a, a joint effort at the time of uh, uh the uh, uh, Katrina or post Katrina. And it has since become pretty much just NWF. Although we do a lot of work with ducks, unlimited folks, we're in correspondence with them constantly because, you know, we're working on the same places. Um, our work is outreach. And, and I started four years ago and before that I'd never heard of deliverable. I didn't know what outreach, I mean, I get the word, but, and the concept, but that wasn't my world. I was in, private outdoor industry. So um, it, it's been a learning experience, but all of our work currently is on the Gulf Coast. Um, in the early days, it was all Louisiana and Erin uh, Brown, who's in our New Orleans office, she does sportsman outreach strictly in Louisiana. Um, so that's how important that part of the Gulf Coast is. And, and most sportsmen, especially waterfowl hunters and those who like to fish, understand it. Um, now, since I came on board, we're all the way from the Texas-Mexico border all the way to, uh, you know, South Florida and the Keys. And, you know, obviously right now we've been in a time where a whole lot of stuff is going on down there, aside from what my day-to-day work is with these uh, two hurricanes, one making landfall, uh, um, you know, this week, and another one made it, what, a week and a half ago. And there may be four more out in the Atlantic that we're looking at right now. So it's been kind of a crazy uh, storm season so far. Hopefully it'll Hopefully, it will taper off a little bit and give folks a break. Um, Banishing Paradise, though, is we're all about getting sportsmen involved in the conservation efforts in uh, on the Gulf Coast because we have issues from you know Texas to Florida. Um, you know, Texas, it's all water flow issues uh, because of all the you know development in, in Texas. Well, they're having to pull water out of rivers. Understandably, we we have to figure out how to make people agriculture and water work together. So those estuaries in Texas, which are crucial for a ton of fisheries, waterfowl, you know, and I'm just talking from the sportsman's angle. There are plenty of other issues too, but from the sportsman's angle, it's fisheries and waterfowl down there. Louisiana, we have, you know, coastal erosion. We're still losing marsh right now. Uh, The latest, which is two years old now, it'll be redone soon, but it's a football field every hundred minutes. That's how much of coastal Louisiana is going all day, every day, all year long. We're losing land there faster than anywhere in the world. That's in our own country. And it's a lot of that's man-caused. I mean, nobody meant to, but that was from, you know, uh, levying the Mississippi River, dredging canals into the marsh for oil, you know, and various things man has, has done that has impacted that area where God and nature used to just... Excuse me, I'm sorry. Used to spew all that, uh, uh, you know, mud and silt from up where I live in Tennessee and other parts of the Mississippi Valley down onto the coast, and, and it just spread out and grew. Well, now we're not allowing that to happen. So our efforts there are to uh, reintroduce the river to the marsh. That's a huge part of our efforts, especially in southwest or southeast Louisiana and southwest or a lot of other things we're doing to mitigate the coastal erosion that's going on there. Um, a lot of the same flow issues 
in Mississippi and Alabama, um, Alabama noticed notably Mobile Bay um, with the causeway that goes across and some other things have been done over the years. Well, the, the flow of water has changed drastically there. With that change, it's created environmental issues that are hurting fisheries. Their waterfowl hunting has just, it's dwindled to next to nothing. I have friends from down there who now come to Arkansas to hunt where 20 years ago, they had great hunting out their back door. And that's just a matter of, you know, water not getting where it's supposed to be. No one meant it to happen. We just didn't know when we were building these things or the few people who did didn't, weren't able to get that information out. Um, Florida, uh, Northwest Florida and Panhandle, you have the water flow issues with Apalachicola and, you know, all the, the rivers going in up in that region. Then down in the Everglades, of course, you and me and Travis talk a lot about that. Um, you know, they have everything from the inputs north of Lake Okeechobee that are a problem, you know, with too much uh, uh, heavy nutrients getting in there to Okeechobee, either artificially low or artificially high. And it seems like that's always an argument and a mess. And then there's no water on a regular basis getting south of the lake to flow through the Everglades. And instead, it's going out east and west and into estuaries that nature didn't create to handle that kind of inflow. So it's killing, you know, when you see red tides, you know, and and, uh, blue-green algae outbreaks in Florida, when you see that all over the news and beaches closed, that's what it is. I mean, we it's a human-created problem. Uh, And at the same time, uh, you know, the very southern coast of Florida, that water is not getting through the Everglades, fresh water. So you have spikes in salinity in places that's killing seagrass and also killing the fisheries. So... Uh, you know, the Gulf Coast has a lot of stuff, bad stuff going on. On the plus side, uh, we see gains every year. I mean, there, there are positives coming and positives happening. Uh, you know, in Louisiana, the Coastal Master Plan is pushing along. More projects are getting closer and closer to, to coming to, to actually being built. And, and that's something that needs to happen as fast as possible. Um, for the first time ever, the, the, uh, Senate and House and then the president are all appear to be in agreement on funding Everglades restoration. And that's a wonderful thing to see. It's been that's been an effort since really the 70s and it got heavy in the 80s. And it's just it's progressed and things have not gotten better. They just get worse until you finally rip that Band-Aid off and do what you have to do. So that's you know, it, it's getting sportsmen involved in that. I mean, we we met up there because I had Travis in to meet with his senators and, and his congressman uh, about coastal Louisiana on that trip. And a lot of times I'll get people from other states to come and talk to their senators and congressmen to lobby on behalf of, say, Louisiana. And then I'll bring people from other states, including Louisiana, to lobby on behalf of Everglades. So, you know, that's where sportsmen are able to help each other and push their own legislators. We're about to have 37 in-district meetings in Louisiana uh, with sportsmen there and their their state representatives. Those will all be virtual. Um, no one's meeting in person yet, and that's that stinks. I love meeting in person. Yeah, I think, uh, what was it, last week, uh, the president and some others were in Jupiter, Florida for that, and I think uh, one of Travis's friends, Mike Elf, I think Elf, yes. Elfstein, yeah, he was present for that. He does a lot in the Everglades, and that's something I'm looking to hopefully go down and, and uh, document. Uh, but yeah, on that issue, I think there was just this huge stalemate and because people recognize that Florida is a big touristy state, it's for fishing, it's for wildlife. And I think a big issue is just the population increase and how that's uh, uh, kind of stressing uh, the land. 
um, water, different resources, and, and they're trying to navigate those challenges too. But I think, um, I don't know when they're starting, or I forget if they've started <laughs> the Army Corps of Engineers um, with helping to send water down south. Uh, but I know that that's been a big issue in the news with this administration, especially. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it, it's been proposed forever, almost since the Herbert Hoover Dyke was built. You know, they started realizing this may not be the the best solution. We were trying to create more farming land and more places for people to live and dry up swamps, which is what we did for a long time. I mean, that's we thought that was great. And now we're finding out that the Biscayne Aquifer is going dry and fisheries are being just just horribly uh, damaged with this. So it's hurting people, but you're right. The human uh, inflow to Florida is just, it's not sustainable. I mean, that's not part of my work. So I'm just offering that as Bill Cooksey saying, man, you just can't keep piling people on top of people and expect the natural world to work. But we're working hard to at least mitigate some of that. And uh, right now, uh, the big thing with the core is the EA. EAA reservoir south of Lake Okeechobee to get some of that water out of the lake, bring it south, treat it because now there's so much so much nutrients in that water. It needs to get out before you take it through the Everglades, and um, that's one of the big things. Then, then raising the the uh, I always say it wrong, but the Tianami Trail down there, which is a roadway that goes across the Everglades, and it's hampered flows when there is water, you know, in wet years, when the rainwater flows through there, that stops it. So they're, they're changing that. There, there's a lot going on. And, and fortunately, uh, um, it seems like on all sides of the politics, uh, we've been able to overcome that recently. So that's hats off to, you know, all of the uh, senators and congressmen and the president who are, are in support. Yeah. And can we talk about uh, the impact sportsmen make on the environment? We were talking pre-recording how uh, for many, many years and also um, at the turn of the 20th century, um, sportsmen had recognized that they play a critical role in conservation. There was obviously market game and they were exhausting uh, natural resources and wildlife uh, to the detriment of wildlife. You saw a depreciation in elk, uh, white-tailed deer, ducks, turkeys, bears, and I think it was in at the turn of the century where these wildlife agencies developed, sportsmen were key stakeholders in kind of formulating different things behind the Pittman-Robertson Act. And yet, for some reason, still, we still see more preservationist interests claiming that they're actually doing the grunt work, they're paying all the fees. Uh, could you dispel that notion a little bit? Because I think uh, hearing it from a lifelong hunter you're, like yourself, someone who works in the industry and also works with environmental interests too, um, how sure. you're trying to convey that message. Sure. And it's, you know, so much of that is just a matter of education as you grow. If I hadn't grown up around sportsmen, I wouldn't know who Nash Buckingham, uh, uh, you know, or, or any of these early conservationists. What I, I know Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt might be the extent of it. Um, you know, and he fits right into your timeline as a sportsman who recognized what was happening, especially out West. Um, and we had others, you know, Dean Darling, Nash Buckingham, and, and, you know, on and on who by the 1920s were realizing we're in a totally untenable situation. Um, we're, settling everywhere. We're disrupting everything. I mean, that's what we do as humans. Um, and that's not a bad, that's just us. And and these people saw it first because they were out there. That, that You know, if you fish, you know, I fish on Kentucky Lake all the time. And I 
have watched the ebbs and flows, you know, from lack of grass to lots of grass to now the Asian car. And you see the problems before other people realize their problems. So they were the first ones to cry out. And fortunately, we had some great visionaries in that time, um, in the first half of the 20th century, especially up through the 40s. Um, and of course, we're talking the Dust Bowl era, which was horrible for waterfowl and for you know humans, obviously, in the Midwest and, and West. But those men were able to rally sportsmen and help get sportsmen to understand that we had to make serious changes. As you said, there was market hunting. There was, there just, there weren't game laws. County game laws were what we had in the very first years of the 20th century. I mean, uh, Beaver Dam in Mississippi, which was a private gunning club, still is. I believe they set their first limits at 100 ducks per man per day. They set it as a club because they felt like they were killing too many, but there were no other laws. So, you know, slowly sportsmen were realizing it. And then those visionaries got busy and went to Washington, D.C., and they lobbied uh, Congress and the president. And you brought up Pittman Robertson, and that's, you know, the federal duck stamp has raised billions of dollars. And all that money is earmarked for habitat. All these national wildlife refuges, that's where it comes from. And those are duck hunters. Um, the uh, Pittman-Robertson Act, uh, my state of Tennessee, we have two sources of funding for uh, game and fish resources, and that's our state licenses, hunting and fishing licenses, and Pittman-Robertson. That's it. We don't get money from anywhere else. There's not a wheel tax, a gas tax. Some states have those, and that's great. And the Pittman-Robertson Act was started by hunters, pushed by hunters, and finally made it through Congress and signed by the president. And that is a tax on all of your hunting equipment and shooting equipment. So even, you know, right now we see in the news that so many people who have never bought guns. Mm-hmm. Are guns. And I was on a conference call not that long ago with a bunch of people who are great conservationists, but some of them aren't big gun people. They're not anti-hunting. They're just, they come up in a culture where guns aren't necessarily a good thing. So their first reaction might be that this is bad. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, just remember. All of that Pittman-Robertson money that's going to be coming into conservation from these millions of new gun buyers, that's a huge amount of money that's going to be out there for conservation funding. So that's where sportsmen are, and and we're still doing it. Not that every sportsman takes a day-to-day, you know, and day-after-day interest and is focused on it, but most at least have a a general understanding. And when called upon, and this has been the great thing in what I do, I pick up the phone and I call old friends in California. Hey, man, how do you feel about this? And would you be willing to fly to Washington, D.C. and meet with any of your, and they've met with all of them. I've had guys from California come and meet with Nancy Pelosi (laughs) and her get on board. You know, so, and and one of these guys from California is the biggest right-wing guy you'll ever meet. But he actually likes Nancy Pelosi. They get along very well. And he's called on her in district in California and in D.C. So often what we see on the news isn't people in real life aren't quite what they're portrayed as on the news. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, she's an interesting case. Yeah. <laughs> Podcast aside. Yes, she is. We'll um, leave that. But, but yeah, you, 
uh, before I went into the private sector and well before I launched this podcast, I would do a lot of lobbying. I've done, I think, a lobby day with Safari Club too. I would do it across different issues, but it is important um, mm-hmm. to go meet your lawmaker and to talk to them. And then I don't know if you can always sway them, but in many cases you can, if you can talk to their staffers, to them directly. Uh, and it, it's not so much lobbying because you're not exchanging money, uh, but, but they call well, it kind of like um, symbolic lobbying or petitioning, yeah. I guess, or advocacy. Um, but it, it can be considered lobbying without any formal exchange of money. That's that's right. kind of how I viewed it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's I mean, when you get down to the word, it's lobbying, but it's obviously these aren't paid lobbyists. These yeah. are. And, and the great thing about sportsmen and you touched earlier on preservationists and all we can get into all that. Um, especially my personal views, but um, sportsmen, unlike almost any other group, can get access to virtually any office. Mm-hmm. Okay. They don't, they are seen as a positive person to meet with almost no matter what. Even if you're on the very, you know, liberal side of things, well, I'm showing that I want to listen to sportsmen and hear their views, even if they don't move that direction. And you know, a, a real conservative legislator might say, I don't want to meet with those greeny groups. I'm not meeting with environmentalists. I don't have time for that mess. But these are sportsmen. And this is uh, the CEO of Strike King Luter Company from Tennessee. I should probably meet with him because sportsmen will, and sportsmen are part of my voting demographic, mm-hmm. or they feel that way. So our people are often able to get meetings that would be real d- difficult for other folks to get in our you know, little compartment. Yeah, because these issues should cross partisan lines. Obviously there are different idiosyncrasies and, and sometimes people don't fully live up to that um, on right. one side. And then sometimes on, I would say in our side too. Uh, but I think um, more people are starting to think like sportsmen um, mm-hmm. and allow for balanced use, which is extremely critical, but you can also say no to certain projects too. Um, sure. But I think you see like this preservationist element um, where sometimes they don't want to work with sportsmen or they just want them out of the equation. They're like, no, 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 we have to have these goals. But I think you do see across um, sportsmen's groups that they have an interest to even go into, let's say, unfriendly territory and say, here's where I stand on these issues, why it's important. This affects your constituents. And you may not like my personal politics, but like, please hear us out. Like we would yeah. like to have your consideration because you guys vote on these bills. Like it's bipartisan to see uh, like a modernization of the Pittman-Robertson Act, these different right. conservation wildlife bills usually have both party uh, members voting for it. Yes, absolutely. And, and um, I see more coming together over the last few years, believe it or not. I mean, I, the country sure doesn't seem to be that way, but right. sportsmen and environmentalists and you know, we'll still sometimes have some different sometimes radically different thoughts on a whole lot of things, but, but we're able to mesh where we share views. And and I think that's becoming more and more effective, or I sure hope it is, Um, you know, no matter what administration comes in, if we can, you know, whether, whether, you know, president Trump remains or or, uh, vice president Biden, whoever, if we can keep that mesh moving forward, we can keep making gains and the kind of conservation gains that we want will also end up being human gains, job gains. Uh, you know, we don't want to just spend money. Mm-hmm. This is security for the future of our nation. Right. Uh, and I think we saw that with the Great American Outdoors Act just absolutely. recently being signed into law. That was, I think it's the largest consequential public land bill in 50 years. 
yes. people don't know the the extent of how important that is, especially yeah. off, uh, giving permanent authorization, permanent funding, excuse me, to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And I think um, setting aside money annually to help address the nearly 20,000, or excuse me, 20 billion <laughs> in a park maintenance backlog. Uh, right. and, and that that brought together a very divided Washington. And I think the, the president very enthusiastically signed it. He, I think, first eliminated from his budget. And sometimes that happens. That's part of negotiating processes. I don't sure. think he had any malintent with it. I think some people on our side say, no, no, he just wanted to do this. But sometimes, you know, a lot of things are, are on a budget. I'm not excusing it, but there's a lot to sift through in a budget, especially when you're wanting to appropriate billions or trillions in dollars. Um, but he probably consulted, and it seems like he consulted Cory Gardner, Steve Daines, and some others, some allies of his in the Senate who are conservationists, and uh, realized the importance of this, how he can have an impact on it, um, not just for his personal gain, but what he can do to leave a good legacy for his children, grandchildren, right. all, everyone's children and grandchildren who who like nature. So I think he he understood the importance of America's naturalistic uh, value and appeal. So it was right. good to see him him jump on board eventually as well and sign it into law. Yeah, absolutely, and I, you know, um, the process is far from perfect. But I don't know how you make it perfect because they're, I've said long before I was doing this, we're all in a special interest group. I don't care who you are. You have a special interest that you're, you know, you're wanting, uh, that you're pushing for. And, you know, mine just happened to be game and fish. But um, it's none of this legislation will ever be perfect. The process isn't perfect. No politician, no, I don't care if he's your favorite ever. He wasn't perfect. You know, uh, he made bad decisions. He made good decisions. And uh, I don't care who it is. All of them, are, you know, would fit into that boat in this country any way that I can think of. And um, if more people can view it that way and not get so hung up on the, uh, especially on conservation issues. I mean, there are issues you just have to have your, your, core values, whatever those happen to be. And and those can be drastically different amongst good people. That's the amazing thing. Um, but if we if we can keep in mind of just pushing forward and, and not getting hung up on the negatives, push forward where a positive outcome can occur, there'll be a little bit of bad stuff in there. And that's just, that's negotiating, that's getting it through. Um, otherwise, we sit here and nothing happens. And nothing happening is why South Florida is in such bad shape. Nothing mm-hmm. happening is why South Louisiana is losing a football field of land every hundred minutes. Uh, not doing anything is the reason Texas estuaries are, you know, lacking all that freshwater inflow. And, and you know, not doing anything doesn't help us at all. Right, and I think. Um the Great American Outdoors Act was mostly a clean bill. I don't think they threw in any pork or uh, programs that detract from the overall message. That was really nice to see, too, because oftentimes in these bipartisan bills, most of them are really bad from a, from a generalistic standpoint. But this was largely a pork-free, uh, special project-free um, bill. So that was really nice to see that, even in these increasingly divided times. Well, a- absolutely. I think, you know, if you, I'm not a policy guy, so it's a lot easier for for me to, to look at it broadly and say, okay, this is a good thing. And, you know, you talk to policy people and they'll start picking something apart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're a lot closer to that world than I am, you know, with, with what you've been doing uh, for several years now. But uh, uh, so I, you know, I kind of listen to the policy folks, but then, hey, this is a good thing. So I, I'm not hung up on the, the 
arguments about what's bad in, in any of these bills, and unless it's something significant. And that one, I didn't see anything significant. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about kind of your observations. You probably have seen this in Tennessee, but with this pandemic, one of the, I think, redeeming, not redeeming, but one of the more positive consequences to it is we see this uptick in hunting and fishing. I know in Tennessee, there's probably been a huge percentage increase in license sales, a lot of interest. What has been your observation with that? Um, I know you've been taking your kids out. Uh, a lot of people are. We see a lot of newbies uh, discovering it, uh, inquiring about it, wanting to partake in it. Now with the fall season coming into swing, we see a lot more people doing it. And and how will it benefit us? Because we talked about, uh, it's a big conversation, I should say, in the outdoor space community that uh, with the languishing hunting numbers that were uh, revealed, uh, I think it was a 2017 report on 2016 and how there was a shortage or excuse me, a decrease in hunting participation. But do you see um, more enthusiasm, more interest in how this can play into fixing those numbers and uh, kind of reversing the negative trends as to hunting participation loss? I I hope so. Um, It's obviously this has been an unprecedented situation. I mean, I uh, I'll start with hunting in Tennessee. We can just use Tennessee as maybe a little micro of, of what's happened all over the country. Um, we didn't have anything shut down. I think there were a few maybe Corps of Engineers boat ramps during the entire shutdown where they just said, we just can't staff them. Um, so th- even that wasn't a formal shutdown. It was just, they're not being staffed. So uh, if they had gates, they probably locked them just because they couldn't get down there if someone were hurt or to maintain things and all. But otherwise, everything was wide open. Um COVID hit right about the time our spring turkey season was opening up. And uh, our turkey numbers in much of the state had been slowly going down. And we set a harvest record back in the spring. Uh, my, my hometown here, there was no one on the roads except 4 a.m. going turkey hunting. The rest of the day, there would be no cars, but uh, it, there were people hunting everywhere. We set a new record, over 40,000 turkeys killed in the spring. Wow. And I think that was seven or 8,000 more than the previous record. That's actually a conservation problem. Yeah. Suddenly all these people were hunting. Um, Even we had new license sales and that was great. New people came in, but then other folks who normally would work five days a week and just hunt weekends. Now they had every day, you know, Mm -hmm. they weren't getting to work. Most of them were still employed. Those who weren't were getting the, you know, the, the, unemployment bonus so they went hunting all spring and i shot a turkey the last thursday of the last friday of the season that had been shot by three hunters during the season i found pellets from three different hunters so that gives you some idea Um, there were places i just quit going uh, because there were so many people there that it just wasn't fun but it it got more people into hunting it was a one-year thing hopefully we won't quite hit the deer that hard this fall, but because everyone's back to work, thankfully, but uh, our, our most people in, in this area are back to work. Um, fishing saw the same thing. By early May, you couldn't buy split shot here. And we have Academy, Dick's, Walmart, all these and private shops. You couldn't even find a split shot to go brim fishing with. Everything was sold out. Uh, boat manufacturers are still sold out. Um, I talked to Warren Coco in Louisiana the other day, and he is over two months behind. And he hadn't been behind in a long time. Uh, you know, he's good at, at keeping his people rolling, so he's behind. Um, all of them are, and that's good for the industry, and that's good for Pittman Roberts 
you know, Pittman Robertson money because all these funds are going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we had one local lake. Tennessee has a lot of these, they call them family fishing lakes, and they'll be around various cities and towns. And it's a 148-acre lake. And I was talking to a game warden one day. It's a place I don't, I rarely go. It's a little far from me. I have to pass other lakes to get there. 148 acres, and there were several days in the spring with over 50 boats on that lake. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, and my home lake that's 10 minutes from my house, uh, there were days, you know, I work from home. and I've spent a lot of my life getting to the point I can work from my home office. And that means, hey, this is going to be a great morning. I can slip out to a deer stand. I can slip out the lake and fish for two hours, get back for a meeting. And I'm all good. And I would get to the lake and say, I'm not even putting in, man. There's so many people fishing. But that's great for the fishing industry. It's great for fishing. And, you know, all that money on licenses is going to help our state agencies. So that's a good thing. So uh, and hopefully, hopefully we can maintain some of that. We have to deal with access issues. Um, I think that's the number one enemy for hunting is people just having access for a place to go. Um, you know, some good things are happening as far as more and more of us realizing we have to get adults involved. It can't just be take a kid fishing because if the kid's parent doesn't take them, okay, the kids maybe had a good time once. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to get those parents and other adults going. So lots of good movement there. But uh, this year got some people out that hadn't been going, and hopefully that will keep up. Yeah, I I would hope so, too. I'm curious to see the Virginia numbers as well because uh, – it was weird. We could go out, but because we were in phase zero, they were like, stay very close to home. But so it was really a fine line between, do you go out? Like I, I avoided going to do some urban trout fishing, like within an hour away because they said, well, because it's so potent right now, you have to stay home. So like, I felt I couldn't go out cause I didn't want to be in breach of certain rules in place. Right. Um, but people in Virginia who have public or excuse me, private land hunting, access. I, I saw many of them get out in the field. It was very, a little bit different for fishing um, because a lot of commercial operations or, or charter boats were not in operation until right. June. Um, so it, it varied, I guess, according to your target. <laughs> yeah. um, and different states varied. Some had extremely huge surges in uh, license numbers, people going out. So I guess it does depend on your state. <laughs> but I think even with certain limitations, I think we will still see a surge in, in monies coming into Pitt and Robertson and, and wildlife agencies. Sure. You know, obviously the, you know, all of my outfitter friends along the coast, they had a horrible spring. I mean, um, one that I actually just spoke to earlier this morning, I was calling him to ask, he's south of New Orleans, and I called to ask about how it was going, this hurricane would affect them because it appears it's going east. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we talked about spring and it was over $400,000. He was off um, at his lodge just because of no one traveling to fish. And, uh, you know, I didn't travel. Of course, we have a travel ban still at work. Um, I'm done a little bit of traveling on my own, but uh, uh, it's still people aren't getting out there. So, yeah, the outfitters are just having a horrible time. Yeah. Hopefully, at least though, people local are picking up some slack yeah. with, with you know, the retail stores and licenses, that sort of thing. But it's still... I feel bad for my outfitter friends all over the country right now, and especially those on the coast where everything's been hammering them here in the last few years. Right. Yeah. It's extremely important in this time to support the small businesses, the outfitters who really do grind and really provide a quality service. 
um, much like the other sectors of small business, um, they're really hard hit. So I would like to hone in on that fact. And I think you, you probably would agree that it's so important to like give these companies your business um, because the bigger conglomerates are going to do generally fine, but the smaller ones are the ones that struggle a lot. Sure. And, and you know, I, I almost wouldn't touch on this, but so many people, sportsmen have a lot of ego. We do. We, yeah. we, <laughs> we tend to get pre-wrapped up in it. I, I've been doing this for, you know, I'm 52 years old, about to be 53. I've hunted all over the country, all over North America. And there's no reason for your ego to keep you from going out fishing or hunting with a guide. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It ah. is fun to get in someone else's boat with someone else's gear and go out to a place you've never fished or hunted and, and get that experience. And, and if Absolutely. you'll... Treat it like hunting or fishing with a buddy. And I now have lifelong friends who guided me somewhere 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can be successful anywhere with a little bit of work if I can afford the, you know, to get the right stuff to hunt or fish there. Um, but why do that when you can go with a guide, experience a new place, experience a new fish or game and, and you know, put your ego at the door and go have fun. Yeah. That's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be fun. Absolutely. No, I think there's a problem and we could dedicate a whole episode to this where people like to lecture you on the best type of hunting, the best type of fishing. I've been on the receiving end of attacks like, well, uh, to a place that I caught that beautiful golden rainbow trout. People were like, you caught it from a pond. I'm like, it's not a pond. It's a mountain stream that flows to the north fork of the south branch of the Potomac River. It's adjacent to a pond and and their facility is to introduce people to fly fishing and fishing. Mm -hmm. But like their, their stream is almost like uh, any type of stream you would find. I mean, it is stocked for sure, but I learned how to uh, use dry fly uh, shrimp patterns, very tiny little microbe shrimp pattern. And I caught like a nearly 10 pound fish and I was trying different flies and things of that sort and they weren't working. And then we switched to this uh, fly and it did the trick. So yeah, I think um, you could do it in a a more controlled setting. You can go out, you know, to the wilderness, whatever. I think people, people limit like, oh, it has to be a do-it-yourself hunt or it has to be like this. Sometimes you can't do that. If someone is just starting to try these activities, it may be very intimidating for them to do a solo hunt or a do-it-yourself hunt or do-it-yourself fishing trip. So it's okay to lean on different people. It's okay to have uh, different trips um, to have guides or no guides, whatever. Like, I, I think people should be less hung up on that and more happy about people just going out there as long as they're doing it ethically and legally, mm-hmm. having fun and discovering the joys of the outdoors. Places like that where where someone who's new to fishing or, or possibly has some physical issues. Um, and, and it's the same with hunting preserves. Again, when they do it right, they can be a great experience. Um, the uh, uh, In Arkansas, they have a little place called Dry Run Creek, and it's the outflow of the hatchery on the North Fork River. And it is limited to children, and I believe it's still open to those who, who have uh, uh, handicapped I see. stickers, that sort of thing. If you are truly handicapped, you can fish it as well. It is a single barbless hook, artificial, fly fishing. Sweaty. I could, I haven't been there in 10 years, and I bet you within five minutes I can show you a 34-plus-inch trout. Oh, my gosh. That's and not icing. <laughs> both, both of my kids, you know, we would take them there. We would go up there on spring break. It's a great place to go on spring break in March. Um, the trout fishing on the rivers was generally insane. There'd be a shad kill, and you catch big trout and all. But I could take them when they were kids to that dry run creek. And they it's fish after fish after fish. And they learn a lot doing it. Uh, they're not that hard to get a fish to bite, 
but you still have to land him in moving water and learning to do that. There's a lot that can be learned. And, you know, after a few hours, generally they'd say, okay, let's go fish the real river. You know, they'd, all right, I've had enough of this. Let's go do it the hard way. And then by the next day, like, let's go do that again. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. And I have a client who runs a beautiful fly fishing lodge in Georgia. He has a four mile stream. And some Mm -hmm. people may even consider that, although it's wild and it's, it's from the Soqui river. Much of it is public. Some of it is private. Some people might not even think that is real fishing too. And I'm like, no, it's, it may be guided. It may be a little more controlled of a setting, but you're getting as naturalistic of an experience as you can, especially if you're new to fly fishing. Yeah. A hundred years ago, what was it like when you went out West to a stream that just didn't get fished? I mean, that's somewhat what the experience you're getting when you're on some private water where they just take care of the resource. Um, It's, Check your ego at the door. I mean, look, do what you like to do in the outdoors. Hunt and fish the way you like to hunt and fish. But I would challenge people to try something new. Go somewhere different. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even if you're going to do it yourself, there's so much information out there now to get ahead of the game and and have at least some success that first time or two. Or go with a guide the first time and then try going back. Although I'll tell you, in fishing, uh, it's not as easy now as it was when GPS first came out. I'd have friends that are in the guide business, and they, they'd notice that whoever they were guiding would have a GPS out. Uh-huh. And they'd look at them and say, um, I don't know if you realize this, and I don't know why it is, but when those things are on in the boat, fish just don't bite. Really? Everyone tells me otherwise. I don't know. I haven't. Done, I don't fish with the GPS, but. <laughs> right. No, they, basically, they were tr- telling the client that, you're not going to be overfish until you turn your GPS off. Interesting. Huh. Because then the client would come back the next day with their own boat and fish over where the guide had taken. Oh, okay. That I see. So they're kind of protecting yeah. their little hot spots that used to be hard to find and they're getting easier. Right. I've made fishing. Oh. It's amazing. Oh my gosh. Bill, this has been so much fun. How can people connect with you? Learn about Vanishing Paradise and uh, get involved in that capacity. Um, Vanishing Paradise, we're, of course, vanishingparadise.org. Um, on, on the www, we have uh, Vanishing Paradise Facebook, Instagram. Uh, you can find me on uh, Facebook or Instagram. My Facebook is William Lee Cooksey IV, uh, which is a little unusual. But, uh, yeah, look us up. We have blogs coming out constantly, new video content. We'll keep you up to date on the Gulf Coast and what's happening with sportsmen. Beautiful. And hopefully I can get down to the region and you can show me firsthand what's happening. I've had uh, interest from um, Jeff Angers as well uh, from the Center for Sport Fishing Policy to come check out what uh, what they're doing down there, especially with maintaining the oil rigs and the coastal uh, conservation efforts. So, no, this has been so much fun. I hope we can get together again in real life soon. And I hope you're doing well. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Anytime. Get down here to Tennessee and shoot a duck this winter. Yeah, no, I, I would love to go back to Tennessee. Our POMA conference was just rescheduled for Franklin in June of next year. So okay. maybe we can link up sometime before then or around that time frame. What did you think of my conversation with Bill Cooksey of Vanishing Paradise? If you liked it and you've been liking other past episodes of the podcast, make sure you guys are leaving us your honest reviews, downloading past episodes, engaging with us on our social media accounts facebook twitter and instagram specifically and let us know what you'd like to see here we are going to keep the conversations going with people of different thinkings of unique perspectives that can affect us all across the country in our regions and so much more 
If you guys look out for next week's podcast, I want to give you guys a little, I guess, teaser as to what you can expect. Next Monday is going to be probably one of the most important interviews here on the podcast and in my political career. I won't tease exactly where I'm going or who I'm interviewing. That's for you guys to find out. If you're subscribed, I may tease it on Sunday uh, after I'm done with my trip. But I'm going on an assignment to a secret place in the United States to talk to someone very interesting in this line of work. And you're not going to want to miss our conversation and kind of my behind the scenes look into what I'll be doing in this particular place. I think you're going to like it. I hope you guys will tell your friends about it to get them excited about my upcoming guest. But send your suggestions and more to me and we will consider them. I should be having Congressman Bruce Westerman, who is the lone congressperson to have a background in forestry for the following week. So that's going to be a lot of fun. We have more politicians coming and I'm going to do my best to have more non-politicians come as well. There's so much to talk about, so many interesting people, and you're going to hear more about what is trending in public policy, technology, and much more on that end. So stay tuned for Monday's episode. You're not going to want to miss it. Our guest is going to be fantastic. That's all I'm going to say. Encourage your friends to subscribe to us, to leave reviews, and to engage with us wherever you may listen to podcasts. That's how you can hear future episodes. You can contact me to chime in on your suggestions as to who I should bring on, nominate someone to come on, volunteer yourself. If you have a really interesting story, I'm going to be chronicling more outdoor adventures too and have my dad come on. We're going to be doing some fishing and hunting, hopefully his first hunting trip here in the States because he used to go hunting a little bit back in Lithuania when it was under Soviet Union. So we're going to try to chronicle some more Hoffman father-daughter adventures and bring on some people I've brought on the podcast before but hang out in person and have their perspectives on. So there is so much to anticipate here on the podcast this fall and winter and I hope you stay tuned for the ride. And we'll try to get into the weeds about perhaps what a upcoming SCOTUS nomination will look like if that candidate will be good for second amendment issues because the second amendment as you guys know is due to have a affirmation in the supreme court it's been a while since a major supreme court case was heard affirming gun rights and it's long overdue to happen a lot of experts say that is bound to happen very soon and where they'll fall on other issues as it relates to the environment and conservation because they did have as i mentioned earlier in the podcast this year late last year there were some interesting cases about the crow tribe uh, that a few of the justices ruled in favor of so we'll we'll probably see some stuff on the supreme court and i may chime in on that only with respect to the second amendment issues i won't bore you guys with the political aspect of that but it'll be really interesting to see who of president trump's nominees will be selected his likely picks between the five to four women he is mulling over but i think they're going to be strict constitutionalists and supporters of the second amendment so that'll be very interesting we'll also see if the candidates weigh in on energy and conservation issues going forward. I will talk about that and try to get some clips if that arises because we don't shy away from that type of stuff. We'll call out good things and bad things. And yeah, just stay tuned. We will have a fun fall and uh, keep you guys abreast with what is happening in and around the nation's capital. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. 
and let me know what you think about what's happening on the podcast if you like what you're hearing, especially if you're new. 